You've dreamed of building a family, but the journey hasn't been easy. I'm Dr. Laura Shaheen, a reproductive endocrinologist helping people build families every day. On our new podcast, Baby or Bust, we'll be learning from both reproductive experts and people who have faced challenges just like yours. Join us every week for Baby or Bust, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to follow us so you never miss an episode. Today on the Zavecast, I'm back and I'm alive. Nine courses, 180 holes, 76.4 miles of walking later, and I'm still not that good at golf. Urban Meyer is on the docket today. Adrian Peterson, NFL penalties and ESPN says goodbye to Beetle. If you've got 40 minutes burning a hole in your pocket, then buckle up and let's go. Here we go. Monday, August 27th, 2018. Thank you for downloading. Did you miss me? Why? I sure hope you did. Because if you missed me, then it means that, well, I'm important in your life. And I appreciate that. I had a hell of a trip to Scotland. Man, man, wow. It was everything I wanted it to be. Just about. Just about. There's a few things. Like, first of all, I'm so fat. Uh, you know, I wear these sweater. I, wear, I bought one sweater over there. One sweater that I'm like, yeah, it looks like a good sweater. Because it was cold as shit one morning at uh, Carnoustie. And so I said, let me buy that sweater that looks, uh, that's got the Scottish blue and it's got the white cross on the sleeve. I'm like, that looks good. It looked great on the rack. It was warm too. Fit the bill. And then I saw photos of me and I'm like, ugh, you look like Kiradesh Affy Barnrat. My God. Back away from the buffet, you pig. So that was the only thing, is that, you know, I had planned for a year and a half. I'm like, I'm going to be in the best shape of my life when I go over there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, one week turned into next week, turned into football season, turned into, ooh, more wings? Sure. So that part of it was disappointing. Otherwise, everything else was absolutely fantastic. No incidents, no arguments, no fights, no injuries. Do you know how hard it is? to take a trip with 11 other dudes, golfers, with their own opinions and their own egos and their frustrations, drinking every night, close proximity. Do you know how hard it is to get 12 guys like that to be everywhere, sleep everywhere, eat everywhere, and not have an, an issue come up? Not a single issue. And our guys did not because we had great guys on the trip. And that was uh, that was wonderful. The only real thing was that one of our guys... Uh, Charlie Mannix, a dedicated listener from Indianapolis, great guy. He gutted out eight of the ten rounds on his stiff neck that really probably needs surgery, he says, but he just doesn't want to have it because doctors have said, careful, because if, if it doesn't go right, then your golfing days are over. He, uh, he played eight of the ten rounds, and then uh, when we finally traveled north after the first eight rounds to go uh, two and a half hours north to Aberdeen to play Trump International and then uh, Aberdeen, Royal Aberdeen. Uh, he said he, he had to tap out, and we were like, Charlie, we love you. 
Uh, thank you for coming on the trip. Everyone had a great time. We'll carry on without you. The formats are not going to be affected for our last two rounds, and so he checked out after Carnoustie. But we had nothing, no incidents. It was great. I mean, we almost had some injuries, don't get me wrong. Uh, Daryl Frenzel uh, took a header uh, going to bed one night down just two or three stairs at the McLeod House at Trump International Scotland up there, which, by the way, uh, you might have seen the photos. If not, go to at Drunk Tom Morris, the name of my trip on Twitter. The place to stay up at you know Trump International in Scotland is basically one small little mini castle. I think it's about 16 rooms, maybe 20, maybe 25. There's a secondary uh, house that has rooms uh, just a short walk away. They don't have a full hotel up there yet. Now, Trump has said he's going to build it, he's going to build it, he's going to build it, but there's a lot of things that keep coming up, but he hasn't built yet, built it yet. So we stayed in this miniature castle. It was unbelievable. And so there's like three steps down, and Daryl was was tired from a long day of golf, and maybe he had too much whiskey. And he also said he had some pain pills in him, and uh, boom, 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 down the stairs face first. But no worse for the wear. Durf tripped outside. Uh, on the on the stone steps and cut up his knee and spilled his glass of wine all over his shirt. But no words for the wear. Didn't miss any time. Uh, Mikey O'Neill's back was in and out a few times, which was very dicey. And I'm like, oh, shit. He's not going to have to miss around. He's not going to have to tap out. I mean, you know, his back went out at Trump uh, up in in Scot- in Trump, Scotland. There's two Trumps. There's the, the Trump now owns Turnberry. I'll just call that Turnberry. That's to the south. Our last course was the Trump International at uh, Trump International Scotland and is up in Aberdeen. So Mikey's back went out literally on the furthest point of the golf course and way up on this massive 80-foot sand dune on an insane par three. And I'm thinking, holy shit, I mean there's no carts that come by. There's no be- well, there was, there was a beverage cart that came by, but I think she already came by and left. There's one beverage cart we saw the entire day. There's no rangers out there. It's just you and the caddies walking. Like I said, 76.4 miles was the total miles walked for the 10 rounds that we played. Uh, Turner did almost fall into the one of the uh, the canals at Carnoustie on the first hole. First hole, we hit our tee shots. We start striding down the fairway. And, you know, the uh, the Barry Burn, as it's called, you know, it's a big concrete aqueduct, basically, about six feet deep, at least, maybe eight. They have bridges over them. Do the bridges have handrails? No, no, no. It's just a flat bridge. And Turner was kind of turned backwards looking at it. Or no, he was looking down at his phone or looking into his phone, not down. He would have probably seen it. And Durf was looking back at me, kind of quarter angle, and I saw the bridge coming. I go, whoa, 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 look out. And it, I think it saved Turner from falling in, which would have been ugly. Of course, Turner also almost blew out his Achilles, deciding to jump the Swillican burn at nearly midnight, hammered. That's right. The Swillican burn is the famous creek, a little uh, concrete aqueduct creek that uh, crosses the 18th fairway and in front of the first green at the famous old course at San Andrews. And it's only about a 
seven foot jump laterally? Six foot? I don't know what it is. But guess what? In the pitch black, which it was, with only lit by cell phones, and in bare feet after a long day of golf and a bus ride and some cocktails, oh no, that was not a good idea. But he made it. He cleared it, and then he jumped back over it again. And when he landed coming back over, he kind of slipped backwards. And almost like, oh my God, did he blow out his heel? Did he blow out his knee? Did he blow out his Achilles? Any number of horrible things could have happened. They didn't. Someone could have broken an ankle, uh, tromping around the high weeds looking for golf balls all over Scotland because there was plenty of places where you're climbing in there into the wire grass and the heather and the gorse and the fescue. And there's uneven lies and, oh, yeah. Nobody got hurt, so knock on wood for that. A lot of people have been asking me, so does anybody I've been watching. If you want to see more pictures and video, and I'll keep posting it, uh, the Twitter feed is at Drunk Tom Morris. And there's a lot more stuff that I have that, of course, is going to take me days and weeks and months to finally dig out and edit up and put together. But still, that's where a lot of the images are. People say, did you use a tour operator? And I say, yes. And I will give him... Well, you heard him on the same cast last when we met, Ronnie Pook, Scotland Tours. Uh, when people say, well, what did it cost? My answer to that is, well, I'm not going to say that because there's two things here. Number one, it makes me look like a rich asshole to people who don't play golf. What? That's how much money it costs? Yeah. It was expensive. No question about it. The second reason I'm not going to quote you a cost is because your mileage may and your mileage will vary. There are quite a few tour companies that do this. Ronnie at Scotland Golf Tours is the one that I have used now successfully and happily for three different trips over there, two golf trips and one anniversary trip with my wife. And so I feel comfortable using him, and he earns whatever percentage markup he gets putting all this together. You can book it yourself. One of our guys on the trip went to Scotland last year, as a matter of fact, Danny Benedum, Benedetum, or Benadryl, or Danny B, or Benny, I just called him. He loved it so much, he's like, well, I was just there last year, but you know what? I want to go again. And he ended up winning the week-long, week-long net championship. Uh, so he was the net winner. Great golfer, Danny B. He's like, well, since I won, do I get five minutes in the podcast? And I'm like, five minutes? I'm going to talk for 10 minutes, which I'm looking at the clock here, I think I already have, about this golf trip, and people are going to be tapping their watches going, let's get on with the sports, Sabe. Enough of your stupid trip. But yeah, uh, for the first-timers out there, I say book well in advance. Because what you want to do is you want to book whoever you use, whether it's my guy Ronnie at Scotland Golf Tours or somebody else. You start, if you're a first-timer, with getting the old course tee times locked down and to do that you've got to be well ahead of the game because already he said that the 2019 times that they have are almost sold out so you got to get 18 months ahead of time or thereabouts year and a half secondly i believe 12 guys is the most you should even think about bringing over i did it with eight the first time that was great 12 this time was just right. Any more, too many. Too many cats to herd, too many guys, things can go wrong. And especially if, you know, let's say you're like, oh, I got 12 guys that would love to go. 
And then you start setting up the invites. And you find out, well, I really only have eight or nine. But let's scramble. Let's rope in this guy. Let's rope in that guy. Well, I don't know him that well. The more guys you bring in that you don't know well, the higher the percentage chances are that they're going to be a douchebag or that there's going to be a problem. I also think with me, I've got the power of the radio. I've got the power of this microphone here to help keep people in check because they all knew, hey, if I'm a douchebag on this trip, Zabin is going to light me up either on the air on his radio show or on his podcast, and I don't want that. Without that, though, I think there could be some definite case for guys getting loose. Anyway, the trip almost began with a complete and utter disaster that was entirely unnecessary, and it ended with another bogey that I just slapped my forehead going, you've got to be kidding me. I'll tell you more about that at the end. But real quick, so many great moments on this trip. I don't know where to begin. First of all, St. Andrews, the old course, we played it. We we, we had, first of all, the, the midnight stroll we took, we first got there on Tuesday night, and everyone was all geeked up. You could see the Royal and Ancient Clubhouse. We were staying at the Old Course Hotel on 17, which, by the way, is unbelievable. There's a fourth-floor bar-slash-breakfast area where you are on top of the road hole, literally on top with huge windows looking down. It's unbelievable. There's a, a patio as well to go outside if you want to smoke a cigar and take in the Scottish air on a nice day and look down at the course. It's great. Again, it's not cheap. I don't know how much it costs per night. It was part of the package. I told my guy, Ronnie, I said, four and five-star places, and I want to be in the Old Course Hotel, period, amen, end of story. You can stay elsewhere, but I say, why? So that's where we were, and you know, when we got there, we're all geeked up. You can see the clubhouse in the distance, and, we sa- and I said to the guys, I go, hey, guys, let's go take a walk down 17 and 18. And they're like, what? On the course? Really? And I go, yeah. Like, people walk all over the 1st and 10th, or the 1st and 18th holes all the time. Dogs are running around out there. Not during the course of play, but also, but the one day off per week. And I think it's Mondays, yeah. I think Mondays the course is closed. But in Scotland, apparently, there's no trespassing. That's what they said. I know, it sounds weird. You're like, wait, what? No trespassing that everything is public property except for the actual house you live in. I don't know how that works exactly, but whatever. That's what they said. So yeah, so they even had the flagstick still in on 17 and still in on 18. They're not fancy flagsticks. In fact, they're just a red flag. So there's nothing to steal like, yeah, let's get drunk and steal this as a souvenir. You wouldn't even know it was from the old course. And the ground and the grass is so firm that you're not going to mess it up. Uh, even walking on it, you don't have to like step gingerly. Like, Ooh, be careful! I don't want to. I don't want to cause any uh, you know, scuff marks. But we were respectful. We uh, we took a photo next to the flag in the pitch black on seventeen, and a couple of the guys took off their shoes to feel the ground and the grass underneath their feet, and they were like, "Wow!" And even I too was like, "This is awesome! This whole scene, ah, it's unbelievable." So we did that. That was a great moment, and then of course. When we finished on the old course the next day, we had the most glorious sunshine and basically calm winds that enveloped us for the final two holes of the old course. It was 
When I say it was surreal, I am not exaggerating. I felt like it was a dream. I felt like we were in the Truman Show, that that movie where the whole town was inside a fake dome. It was literally that perfect. And it was uh, it was also a powerful finish because, um, you know, one of our guys, my man Getter, one of my best buds in the entire world, he went down 18 thinking about his father who passed away about two years ago. Father was a big golfer, taught him how to golf, played golf with him. I know they had plans, Eric and his father, to play there at St. Andrews together. And life got in the way, and it just it didn't happen. So he's going down 18 in our group, and uh, Big Mike is with him. And I was kind of lagging behind because I'm always fiddling with my stupid cameras and whatnot. I see him walking up 18 arm in arm, and I come sort of jogging up with my camera thinking, oh, this is great, the sunshine, this is a great image. I'm all about the image. I'm all about it. I got to get, get the shot, got to get the shot. I didn't know until I kind of came out in front of him and turned around that I saw that, you know, Eric was was pretty much, you know, bawling, and I totally get it, and I started to well up. I mean, that's what golf and life is all about, and I totally get it, but I believe deep down, I believe deep down we got the weather for 17 and 18 for a reason. I believe that his father was absolutely nudging things in our direction, and he had the best seat in the house. Obviously, it's a tough one that he wasn't there with him, but still, it was a great moment. So I paid off that wonderful moment for my friend Eric by (laughs) by crashing his drone when all he said was, don't crash it this time, because I crashed a previous drone of his. Now, it was a light crash at the Bob and Brian Open, where I just banged against the wall of the hotel at Grand Geneva, and it fell to the patio, and it still worked. It was a little scuffed up, but yeah, I crashed it. It was a high-difficulty landing, so he had not let me live that down, but he trusted me again with his new Mavic to fly it around, and I ended up putting, <laughs> putting it into a tree. And I was very sorry about it. I did not mean to do it. And I told him right away, I said, I owe you 800 bucks Because that's the replacement for a new Mavic. Just the aircraft only. Probably cheaper than that. Probably 700 now. Oh, they got the Mavic Air 2 now. or the, No, they got the Mavic Pro 2 or the Mavic 2 or whatever it is. With a zoom camera. And one version has the Hasselblad. And I said, look, I'll, it'll be in the mail Monday, which is today. Um, but lo and behold, as it was stuck in the tree up there at the McLeod house and I, a couple of guys were like, maybe we could throw a bottle at it. I'm like, yeah, you go try it. 65 feet in the air. One of our guys, Miller's like, I got a pruning pole at home that would get that down. I go, no, you don't. Not 60. He's like, that's ah, not that high. Okay. Tough guy. So we told the staff, they were like, you know, ah, I hate to be a bother, but do you have anyone that maybe has a picker cherry picker that can do you have a landscaping company that maintains this beautiful property could you you call them up and see if they could go get that drone up there i thought it was gone i thought it was even if it fell down because of the wind i thought it would be smashed to pieces and it would rain on it and ruin it and who knows what so as we left uh that that final day to go play golf one more round at, at trump international lo and behold on the 15th hole, I want to say, 16th hole. One of, again, one of the furthest holes from the golf course clubhouse. Out of nowhere comes this guy in a white staff shirt holding Gitter's drone. 
He's like, uh, is this the Zabin group? And we're like, yes. Is there an Eric Getter here? Uh, yes. Here's your drone, sir. We were both gobsmacked. We're like, holy shit. How did you get it? Apparently they tied a, a, a small weight to a string or a small rope and then got to like bolo it way up into the air, got it over a branch, pulled the drone down. And I'm looking at the drone and I'm like, this thing looks like it didn't have any, nothing was broken on it. So I smacked Eric on the back. I said, there you go, buddy. Drone's good. No refunds, no replacements. Uh, of course, he said, well, we'll see how it flies. And uh, I guess we'll get, I'll get the word today. Hopefully I'll have time on Monday uh, to take it up for a spin. I think it's probably broken. I think I'm going to have to buy him a new one. But it, shh, hopefully it flies. That, that $800 bogey is not even the biggest bogey of the trip. Again, more on that in just a second. Uh, the chip and putt at the North Barrick West Links was also one of my favorite moments of the trip. It's hard to explain this, but over there, golf is so simple and organic and different than golf in the States that things like this don't exist in America. For example, North Barrick Golf Links, there's two 18s. The West Links is the more acclaimed one. It's fantastic. It's like a miniature, it's like a miniature old course, but with better ocean views and quirkier, weirder, more memorable holes. It also has a nine-hole Wee Links, as they call it. Nine-hole course, all par threes, ranging from 90 yards, eh, maybe 70 yards, to about 120 at the most. So we go out to play it at about 6 o'clock in the evening, just a wedge and a couple of golf balls, two wedges, a couple of golf balls, no putters, because we were playing chippies and stymies, and we're like, no, we're going to play stymies like the old times. And we're out there playing, and we come across two local lads, just young, fresh-faced local lads, uh, and they were playing, and they were also with their two dogs, two brothers with their two dogs, a whippet and a greyhound. And in between hitting shots on this little nine-hole course that we paid all of two pounds, two pounds to play nine holes, they were there playing golf and also throwing tennis balls around to watch their whippets go run after them all over the golf course. And it was great. There was no parents there micromanaging them. They're like, where are you? We were like, hey boys, where, where's your where's your dad? He's like, oh, he's home. And they're like, where's that? And he's like, about five minutes away. Oh, how'd you get here? We walked. <laughs> and there was no one saying, get those dogs off the course. By the way, everybody in Scotland has a dog. Everybody. And because of the no trespassing logs, laws, almost every course we were at, there was people walking along the beach with dogs, walking through the course with dogs. It was great. It was great. I loved it. But that that moment to me was my favorite. Just It was so cool. Just two kids playing a little golf, playing fetch with their dogs simultaneously for two bucks, if they even had to pay that, which being locals, they probably didn't. Let's see, what else? Uh, Muirfield was the guy's favorite course for the most part. It had the best weather of the trip. By the way, we only had nine holes of rain out of 180 total. Pretty, pretty good. The rain, when it did rain, was not too bad either. 
I would say we only had our rain suits on for seven of those holes, only had our umbrellas up for maybe two or three of those holes. So we made out pretty good there. But the weather at, at Muirfield was just perfect, and the course was perfect. I thought the greens were too slow, but that's just me nitpicking. I also think Turnberry is the tits. To me, Turnberry is the best course there. And what they've done, the, the changes, the Martin Hawtree redesign of a couple holes just takes it to the next level. Of course, because Trump owns it, it's now out of the British Open rota and has no plans of coming back. So, yeah, that's a bit unfortunate. But still, uh, Turnberry to me is the tits. The only problem was we had iffy weather there, so we only had about five holes of sun and would have been nicer otherwise. Carnoustie's out of the rotation. It, it just It was not in good shape, even though they just hosted the Open. It's flat. It's mean. It's boring. Whatever. I played it twice. I can do without it. The old course, when I played it in 2012, I said, okay, I've done it off the bucket list. Don't need to play it again. Then this trip came up, and of course, I've got new guys with me, and I'm like, well, I can't not take them to the old course. i got to be honest, I think it's growing on me because the wind and the weather was totally different this time around, and I can see how the old course is the kind of place where it plays entirely different depending on what you get weather-wise on any given day. Then up north, the two courses we played, Trump International, Scotland, and Royal Aberdeen. Royal Aberdeen was an absolute hidden, not a hidden gem. I mean, it's well known. It's like the fifth oldest golf course in the world. They held the Walker Cup there, uh, in which I think a team that included Peter Uline and Jordan Spieth got waxed by the uh, Great Britain and Ireland contingent. I'm not sure if it's all of Europe like it is for the Ryder Cup, for the Walker Cup, but whatever. At Royal Aberdeen, really good. A lot of blind shots. Not everyone in our group liked it. A lot of blind shots. Uh, And then Trump itself was... The Trump course is beyond belief. But there's two things that, for me, kind of... I don't like. Number one is they put up the windmills offshore, which Trump fought, and said, what are you doing? You're going to ruin your views. And as soon as I think the locals found out that he didn't want them, they're like, quick, put them up. Put them up bigger, put them up closer, put them up now. And the second thing was the two nines are very different, very different. And we played in brutal conditions. It was blowing 30 miles an hour, uh, and pretty much our best player uh, shot 80. So, yeah, and he's a scratch. So go figure. Caddies we had were a, a mixed bag, a widely mixed bag. Like, for example, our guy Mike got a tour player, a lady tour player, former European uh, L-E-T, what do they call it? Ladies European Tour. An L-E-T former player. And he did great with her. And then he got a guy who had been working as a caddy for five days. Terrible. I got two bad caddies that were just kids that uh, they didn't really know what they were doing. But then I got a guy who was an assistant pro at not only Whisper Rock in Arizona for part of the year, but he was the assistant pro at Prestwick for the other part of the year. So he was really, really good. Old Nicky Sterling is his name. i got to hit him up. Whisper Rock in Arizona is ridiculously nice. And then some guys that were, you know, in the middle, in the mix. Anyhow, it was awesome. I'm already planning 2020. I'm not kidding about that. I'm planning 2020. I'd love to go there every year to Scotland and play somewhere, or at least Scotland and or Ireland. Every year until I'm dead, as the Scots would say. But I'm going to start with every other year. 
Start with every two and then see if we can't bump that frequency up to every single year. Okay, you done with golf? You done with the golf? Yes, yes. Damn you people, this is golf! Done with the golf. Okay, 28 minutes in. That went longer than I thought. I do apologize. Other news I missed, and I missed a big news week uh, in sports. Urban Meyer. Three-game suspension. I guess, didn't they whack Gene Smith, the AD, with some sort of sanction as well? I don't know if he was suspended for games or whatnot. The outrage from the typical places was as predictable as can be. It was as predictable as the plot line to a Three's Company episode. Tut, tut, outrage, slimy Urban Meyer, winning matters only, and blah, 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 blah. Bottom line to me is this. Urban Meyer was not good at something he should have never been expected to handle, and that is fixing people's marriages. <gasps> what? Are you really taking that tact? Yes, I'm taking that tact. Because here's the thing that most people in the sports media, most media sports media members don't want to admit They don't want to admit that domestic violence relationships are quite, not often, let's just say sometimes, domestic violence situations are sometimes very complicated and layered, and they're not black and white, and they're not as absolute as you would want them or think them to be. The media wants to deal in black and whites and absolutes. You can never hit a woman. I would agree from a chivalry standpoint, but it happens. And when Urban Meyer says, I I told him if you hit her, that's it. You know, and he teaches his players, never hit a woman. Okay. Well, apparently he did. But guess what? The police were never called, or they were called many times. I, you know, I've read multiple reports. No one was ever arrested. No one ever went downtown for whatever reason. Did the police cover it up? Did Courtney Smith say, Listen, I don't want him to lose his job. I don't want him to go to jail. I just want him to stop getting drunk and beating me, which a lot of you know, uh, women who are battered do. They want to make compromises, and that's part of the ugly reality of these situations. But this is not always cut and dry, and I think this one was a complicated, messy marriage that they had tried to save, and they had thought maybe they could, and... Urban Meyer stuck with this guy too long. He clearly was not an essential part of the Ohio State football machinery. So I still wonder why it was that he stuck with him for so long. I don't think Urban Meyer is completely callous and indifferent to domestic abuse. I think he was aware of this being a complicated, ugly marriage that had a lot of elements to it. But once it gets in the hands of the sports media these days, It's all black and white, and every media person is great at Monday morning quarterbacking these situations after the fact and with all the information at their fingertips laid out neatly by multiple reports. Well, you should have done this. You should have done that. It's not as easy when it's coming at your desk at a mile a minute. In fact, I think most of the media would have no idea the stuff that lands on football coaches' desks. All of the crazy shit that washes up from 
kids from troubled backgrounds and their family dramas and fights in the locker room and confrontations and failing classes. Coach gets a report, you know, one of your players is involved in a dormitory BB gun war. What are you going to do? Oh, well, I'm going to, that's terrible. I'm kicking him off the team. Yeah, it was your quarterback. Oh. The starter? Yeah, yeah, that guy. Uh, maybe we could give him a little suspension. Because, you know, and that's Jameis Winston for you. It's easy to kick guys off the team. If you kick a really good player off the team who goes somewhere else and then kicks your ass, you're out as a coach. It's that simple. Yes, Urban Meyer lied badly at media day. And the extra layers of lying and convolutions about what he did know and didn't know and he can't remember real well because he takes medications and whatever fucking excuse. Ridiculous. He's a liar. Urban liar. I already knew that about him. And by the way, all these guys lie. That's another thing the media just doesn't want to ever admit or talk about. They lie as part of their job all the time. Oh, hey, you know what? If you come to this school, you know, uh, stud running back, Jones, we're going to start you right away. We we are going to get you in the lineup right away. They lie to recruits. They lie to their fan base. Hey, coach, we going to state this year? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, not state. That'd be high school, but that's the line from Friday Night Lights. Hey, uh, hey, coach, we got to get, oh, I think we could win the Big Ten. They lie to the media about, you know, sometimes coaches lie in favor or in benefit of the players. Do you know how many times coaches lie to help keep their kids from getting into more trouble? Is there any media outcry about that? So that's all I'm saying is that Nobody ever accounts for all the shit that washes up on Urban Meyer's desk. Well, he's making $7 million a year. That's his job. He's got to handle it. I know. I know. And you're right. He does. He has to handle all that stuff. And a lot of times these coaches don't handle it great. I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, Urban Meyer handling this thing. Well, let me rephrase that. I would say that. Urban Meyer handled this particular case badly in retrospect, but I think it's 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 not even top 10 in terms of egregious college football coaching scandals in the last 20 years. Not even top 10. No, not even close. He had an assistant coach that had a troubled marriage. He knew about it. There was a lot of layers and you know conflicting reports about it. I mean, many people said that this... This woman was hell-bent on revenge, that she had her own issues. I know these are all very politically incorrect things that you just can't say these days. You can never put any responsibility for any of this on the battered woman. You just can't in today's media world. And I'm not putting it on Courtney Smith. I don't know. I don't know what happened in that marriage. I know the photographs that she sent uh, to McMurphy and I guess to Urban Meyer's wife, bad very, very bad. The kind of photographs that you would think, hey, one call to the police, those photographs, and your guy's going to jail. And then the decision-making process is a lot easier if Coach Smith was actually arrested at some point. Then it would have been easier. It never got to that for reasons that 
I don't know. I'll have to keep on doing more reading as they report on, well, why didn't she actually file a police report? Like I said, it's possible that she didn't want to lose her lifestyle as, hey, you know, the assistant, the wife of the assistant coach at Buckeye Nation and we're making nice money and going to the games. I just wish she would stop getting so drunk and, you know, beating me. And I get it. The other thing about the media, one last thing, is that they want to believe in magical thinking, such as if Urban had stepped in and been a leader and had fired Coach Smith at least as you know recently as 2015, maybe that could have saved Courtney from some abuse. Okay, maybe. It might also have gotten her killed. And I'm sorry to be uh, stark about it, but I got to be truthful. Think about this. So, you know, Urban Meyer hears that this coach is beating his wife. He decides, I can't have this. You're fired. And it came from somebody, uh, you know, maybe his wife had sent a text to a friend that then sent it to the coach, and that's how he found out. And he comes home in a blind rage. My career is over, my job is gone. I'll never make this money again. It's all because of you. You're going to fucking die tonight. Oh, yeah, that's how deranged abusers can get sometimes. And it could have put her in a lot of danger. It doesn't mean he shouldn't necessarily have fired this guy. All I'm saying is that the media wants to believe that Urban Meyer had a chance to be the knight in shining armor and to save Courtney Smith from abuse. And if he and he turned the blind eye because he just wanted to win football games. Well, that's great. You know, that column writes itself. And trust me, I read links and I saw tweets about here's my column of Urban Meyer. Here's my column of and they were all the same. They all believed in that magical thinking. We don't know what it would have done. So yeah, Urban Meyer's a liar. Uh he did lie badly at Media Day. He stuck with this shitbag coach for way too long. And yeah, that's who he is. I, I think a three-game suspension is about right, actually. I'd say it's not nothing. It's something. But what do you want? He didn't commit any crimes. And the police never did anything either. So he really should lose his job? How How exactly? For what? I'm sure there'll be more. Adrian Peterson is a redskin. Hallelujah. And he's wearing, I see... Clinton Portis is number six. Look, and I saw that he looked pretty good in the first preseason game he played in, the so-called dress rehearsal. Okay. He comes cheap. Check. There's no risk in it. Check. Why not? Check. I I get all that. I'm just asking you to try to imagine and try to convince yourself that he is going to be a significant factor in a winning season that delivers the Redskins to the playoffs. Go ahead. I'll let you close your eyes briefly and imagine that. Well, don't close them while you're driving. Hmm, can I see the headline in SI? Burgundy Jesus. How a revitalized Adrian Peterson is making the Redskins a threat in the NFC. Can you see that headline on December 1st or thereabouts, Sports Illustrated or some other publication? Burgundy Jesus, a revitalized AP. No, I don't see that. If he rushes for 100 yards twice this year 
for the Redskins, I'll be shocked. If he rushes for 100 yards once, I'll be mildly surprised. If he rushes for 100 yards in the final four games of the season once, just one 100-yard game in the final four games of the season, I will be gobsmacked. In fact, do I dare go back to the well with my pumpkin-eating bet? All right, I will not eat a pumpkin. I will eat a I will eat a I will eat a whole raw tomato. How about that? On the air. And I hate tomatoes. Ugh. Welcome aboard, Adrian Peterson. Good luck to you, my friend. I watched the hits from this week's preseason games or last week's preseason games from afar. I saw all the posts on Twitter one morning as we were getting ready to warm up to play golf, and I said, Oh my God, this is as horrifying as everybody thought it would be. The hit in the Minnesota game. Uh, for landing on a player with your full weight. The hit in the Arizona game as well. I think that was before I left, though. It it was just like three or four different ones. At breakfast, I'm, I'm telling the guys, I'm like, hey, i got to show you these on my timeline on Twitter. You wouldn't believe the flags they were throwing in preseason football. So here's the thing that I'm going to ask. This is the question I would ask the NFL, and it's a rhetorical question because I already know the answer. My only question for the league is this. Do you have a clear vision and a sustainable path toward the game as you would like to see it in the future? Like, have you said, here's how we envision tackling. Here's how we envision eliminating all head-led hits in the game. Here's how we think we're going to get there. Here's Here's step one, year one, step two, year two. Do you think the NFL has that? Of course the answer is no. They've, They've got no fucking vision of what they want their game to be. And there's no sustainable path. All they're doing now is they're throwing yellow flags at the issue, probably to cover their asses liability-wise, because, you know, the league saw how it went with a concussion deal. As soon as it looked like there was going to be some money at the other end of the concussion rainbow, you had guys like kickers, like Chip fucking Miller, sign up for the concussion settlement. And that's when the NFL's like, oh, God. If we have a guy actually paralyzed, making a hit like, well, you did in Ryan Shazier, and he's still not walking very well. But one more of those, and they're going to come after us and bankrupt us. And they may win. Because if kickers were signing up for money from the concussion deal, then this is, I'm sure, what the NFL and the owners were thinking. Let's just throw flags at it. We're going to throw as many flags as we can we're going we're gonna to threaten uh, Terry McCauley. Oh, no, wait, he already retired. We're going to threaten... Uh, oh, I've got to get my referee names out here in handy. Got to threaten Craig Perry with, we'll fire your ass if you don't call these. They're going to throw yellow flags at all this stuff, and they are going to figure it out as they go, which has been pretty much the mantra of Goodell's entire reign. But this is going to be a shit show this year. I mean, my God. And I would like to say boldly, ratings will go down again. They probably will. I'm guessing they will. But sometimes things can be kind of funny. And I wouldn't be stunned if only because of all these new quarterbacks coming up, beginning to blossom, that despite some bullshit penalties on this new rule and these multiple new rules, that TV ratings for the NFL actually maybe go up a tick or two. I wouldn't be shocked. I'm not predicting it. Because you think about it, if Baker Mayfield 
is good, which I don't think he will be, if he's good and the Browns are decent, that's a huge story. If Patrick Mahomes is everything that Andy Reid thinks he can be, that's a story. If Deshaun Watson returns from that knee injury and continues his trajectory, that's a big story. If Rodgers and Brady still have it, those are going to be stalwarts of the league. You got the Kirk in Minnesota intrigue. Same thing for Alex in D.C. You got the rise of Garoppolo. And you got the other quarterbacks taken high. You got Carson Wentz in his comeback, although he's not yet cleared for uh, contact yet, which is very troubling to Eagle Nation given how shitty Nick Foles has looked in the preseason. So the ratings, they may go up despite it being a shit show of penalties this year. Because remember, what is the NFL, kids? A TV show about quarterbacks. Thank you. Everything else doesn't really matter. Glad to see the Nationals are done. Like I said, I mean, I'm not glad to see it. I guess that's sarcasm. Good job, Nats. Good job, good effort. Not only did they put half the team on revocable waivers and let Murphy and Adams go, but they clawed back Harper for whatever reason, I have no idea. They delusionally think they can sign him this offseason. I don't see that happening in a million years, but whatever. And then they lost three in a row to Philadelphia and hung 27 straight goose eggs. So, yeah, good. Season's over. Nice try. Davey Martinez, get the camel rental ready for next spring training because this year is done. And then on Friday, ESPN dumped a lot of stuff. Michelle Beadle out on Get Up. Also, the show is cut to just two hours from 3, 8 to 10 a.m. now. And a sports center has been jammed in at the 7 o'clock hour. Hmm. Maybe they should get a new name for the show as well, since it's not really get up. I mean, it's 8 a.m. Who's not up at 8 a.m.? Slackers, right? The jobless. Maybe the new show could be, I'm up, and I've been up for a while. When's the show on? Jamel Hill is out as well. Mutual decision, buyout of her contract. More sports centers all over the place at 7 a.m. and at noon. I mean, you look at what John Skipper did. You're like, it's almost like the guy was on drugs who decided all this. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry. Too soon? Not too soon. And as far as Beatle goes saying what she did on her way out, which is, you know, the Urban Meyer thing just disgusted her to the point where I can't watch the NFL and I can't watch college. My weekends are freed up now. I'm just waiting for the NBA, the good old NBA, to tip off. I remember Beatle 1.0, and she was the cool girlfriend type. She was the sarcastic, liked wrestling. You're like, this chick, she seems fun to be with. But then somewhere along the way, she just chugged the social media justice warrior Kool-Aid and was never the same. Now, maybe that's who she always was. Maybe she's happy being this. Maybe she's got a plan for her career. I don't know. It's too bad. I like the Beatle 1.0. This Michelle Beatle of now, it's like, I mean, honestly, who tunes in for that? And as far as Jamel Hill goes, look, eh, was there ever a market for Jamel Hill? Did anyone ever say, we got to get Jamel Hill front and center on ESPN. We got to hear her. She's dynamic. She'll cash this in for this ESPN fame in, and she'll ride that for a certain bit. She's got a production company now. She's going to be working on projects, wants to be more involved in politics and activism. And to that, I say, Godspeed. Have fun. I just never really got the sense. I, even though she bragged about her Michigan State 
Spartans. I never got the sense she really liked sports that much. But okay, whatever. All right, finally we'll end with this. A near disaster to start my trip to Scotland. A trip that I had been working on for 18 months. Or had arranged and was waiting and waiting for 18 months. Foolishly, when I booked my airfare, good old United Airlines, not to bash them, I used uh, credit card points to book the airfare because I'm like, oh, this will be great. I'll just uh, you know keep the cost of the trip down. I'll use this free mileage. I've been saving up for a couple of years. Let's go ahead. So I go and I book, along with my boys, Durf and Miller, I book this connecting flight from Dulles to Newark, New Jersey, that had all of one hour and five minutes between landing and taking off for Scotland. Moron. For some reason, I thought, well, this is the basic route we took back in 2012. We flew up to Newark, and then we got on the 715, and we were uh, waking up in Scotland saying, let's go play some golf. No big deal, right? Well, like a moron is thought, it's August. What could I? It might be some rain. might be a thunderstorm or two, but ah, what are the chances? <laughs> rain and thunderstorms in August will fuck up the entire East Coast when it comes to air travel. Not just the storms, but the air traffic control holds and gaps and slots and everything. So we're all happy. Me, Miller, and Durf are there. We're all on the same flight. We're at Dulles. I'm sitting there not paying attention to the board at the gate where we're waiting. I'm kind of off to the side. I'm not looking at the sign. And I'm charging up iPads and fuddling with stuff. And Miller and Durf are just talking away. Blah, 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 blah. All excited for the trip standing kind of in front of the gate where the sign is. I get up and I look at the sign and it says that our 6.30 flight now scheduled for 6.50. I look out the window. There's no plane yet. I motion over to the guys. I'm like, how long has it been like this? And they're like, oh, didn't know. We didn't look. I said, we are fucked. I run, I go right to the gate agent. I'm like, ah, we're going to miss our connection. And he's like, hold on a second. By the way, is there any worse feeling than standing in front of a airline gate agent as they furiously type in a billion keystrokes? You'd think they'd just be a couple mouse clicks, right? So he does all these keystrokes, check this, check this, and you're like tensing up going, oh, please find another flight. There's got to be another flight. You could put me on another carrier, right? No, nothing. He said, look, you're going to miss your connection. The next one's not till tomorrow. I would have, we would have missed the first round at Turnberry and probably the second round at Turnberry the next morning before we got there, which would have made me sick to my stomach. Still does, thinking about how close we were to doing this. He said, look, the first thing you need to do is get your bags off this plane. Here, tell me what bags you have. Show me your bag, you know, your bag receipts. Well, of course, I had thrown my bag claim receipts away like a moron cuz they make you bag your own bags now, and I thought that the the stickers that were on there, I'm like, "Well, these are trash now. I forgot to peel off the, hey, this is my bag claim number." Bob and Derp did it right. I didn't. I'm a moron. And so he he's like, "Well, give me your name and let me look it up." And he's Okay, he's got my bag numbers. He's like, "All right, We'll take those bags off the plane or off the cart. We'll put them at baggage claim, carousel number, whatever. Uh, good luck finding another carrier to get on a flight. 
I'm like, holy shit. So we are now on our phones, searching, searching, searching. Okay, boom. It looks like uh, Iceland Air has a flight that we can get on. It stops in Iceland, but it connects to Glasgow. We'll be there in time. A couple hours late, but that's okay. we got some wiggle room. Let's get on it. Go run to the Iceland Air desk. <laughs> I need I need a ticket to, to Glasgow. They say, oh, I'm sorry. We don't book tickets here in person. You have to go online to do that. Meanwhile, Durf and Miller are down to baggage claim waiting for our bags. And they're still not showing up. And I'm like, you need to raise holy hell to get those damn bags. And then I say, well, we got to get online. We got to book tickets. So it's a complete disaster. We finally all get on. Durf got the last seat on the only flight out to Glasgow. And we, of course, that's a $1,200 bogey. I, well, Of course, I had gotten a free flight with my points, but still, $1,200 bogey. Uh, those guys, I don't know what's going to happen with their tickets. They had to pay for them. That's more than a $1,200 bogey to them. But we're idiots is my point. We're idiots. Why would I connect through Newark for anything ever? United had a 10-15 flight to Edinburgh or Edinburgh as they call it. I didn't look when I was booking the trip. Half our guys were coming to Edinburgh anyway. I'm like, what is wrong with us? Wake up, for God's sakes. I had 18 months to figure out, okay, let's not screw around with getting there. Let's leave plenty early. Leave a day early if that needs be. Let's make sure that we get a flight that is direct. Or if not direct, it is straight out of the country from Dulles that doesn't go to Newark, doesn't go to JFK, doesn't go to Boston or wherever. Get the fuck out of the U.S. Maybe if you have to stop in in London at Heathrow or maybe if you have to stop in Iceland, which I didn't know was a thing, then there you go. You're out of the country. You'll get there roughly in time. Did we think of that? No. Did I pay any attention to it leading up to the actual departure day? No. And I almost fucked up the entire trip. God, I, I'm still, it still skeeves me out thinking about it. I get like that knot in my stomach thinking how close I was to screwing up my own 50th birthday trip. And then, of course, when I get home, I hear that the car, because I parked at Miller's house, and he told me, he goes, here, just pull it up to the curb outside the front. I'm like, is this your property line? He's like, yeah, this is ours up to there. He said, just scooch it away from the mailbox. He says, oh, by the way, my wife says you got a ticket for being parked the wrong way. <laughs> Another 50 bucks on top of it. My question now, I told Miller, I go, I'm not paying that. You're paying that. You told me to park here. He said, well, I just told you to scooch up a little bit. Yeah, but I didn't know that there was going to be, you know, Fairfax County parking Nazis in your suburban street cruising around looking to give people tickets just because their car's pointed the wrong way. It doesn't matter which way it's pointed. $50 ticket. Dagger. But you know what? All's well that ends well. It's good to be back, and thank you for listening. Thanks for the download today. That'll be a wrap. You know, tell two friends. Hit up that Reddit thread about the Zabecast. Leave a positive review and rating. Download, subscribe to all the major podcast outlets, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and the rest. And always remember, when a caddy says to you it's a double breaker, what he really means is, I don't know which way it goes, but this makes me sound really smart. It's a double breaker. It'll start right at first, and then it's going to fall to the left. Aye, laddie. Sure it is. 
Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. On cruise and lay back, cause it's the summertime.